Well, you got the old guy today. That wasn't me, that was that old guy. I was just thinking about this uh, this morning a little bit. It was the last century that I was born in. That may feel old all of a sudden. Yeah, last century in the 1900s. Way back in 1900. <laughs> and uh, one of the jobs I got early on was in her retirement homes. And by the way, this was one of the very first retirement homes. The government decided they would start doing this clear back in the early 60s. And so this is one of the first retirement homes that were around. And I got a job there. I started washing pots and pans, moved up to dishwasher, 10 cents an hour or more. I was really rolling in the dough then, $1.65 an hour. And uh, then I moved to Night Watchman as I went to college. So I'd go to school during the day, and at night I'd do the Night Watchman, give me a chance to do homework, whatever that was, and uh, sleep. Not supposed to sleep, but try not sleeping if you've been busy all day, right? And so one of the people in this came in, and they had extra stuff when they came in. They're moving from houses into basically a small one-bedroom apartment. And so one of them had brought this golf cart in, but it wasn't your typical golf cart with a steering wheel. It was one of those three-wheeled golf carts. Had one wheel in the back and had a tiller, you know, an arm that you push, and that's how you don't like you drive a boat. I don't know if you've ever driven a boat with a outboard motor with one of these things, but it's opposite of what you drive this way. So if you want to go right, you have to go left on the tiller. And I didn't quite understand that thing too well. So I'm driving around this golf cart and I would go to take the corner and I'd push it towards the way I wanted to go and go the opposite way and I land up on the ground and get back up, dust myself off and go. And I was having a miserable time learning that stupid thing because it was not normal. And uh, the executive director called me into the office one day and said, David, he said, uh, when I was in trouble, there was, yes, sir. They always called me David when I was in trouble. My mother, you know how it goes. So that's why I go by Dave today. Because <laughs> whenever it says David, I'm just, you know. But anyway, he said, we want you to start looking out. Somebody's coming in here with a motorcycle or something. And they're just tearing up the lawn. They're tearing up the gardens. It's a mess around this place. And we got to find out who's doing that. And I said, I can guarantee you, they'll never come back. So that's quite a guarantee. I said, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take care of it. They won't be back. So I went in there. I parked that thing and never drove it again and <laughs> became the hero. Well, not everything goes as we plan. Everything goes as we would like it. Not everything goes as smoothly sometimes as we're hoping for. And that is what we have here as we enter this time we call Palm Sunday. Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry. 
And it's all going to finalize in Jerusalem. So he comes from the Galilee, and we start out this journey by travel. And then we have triumph. Then we have tragedy. So you got that, those three things? Travel, triumph, tragedy. First of all, he travels from the Galilee. He comes down. As it were, every year, they go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Passover was the time when Moses took the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. Did it with signs and wonders, miracles. And all through the Old Testament, in the Psalms and the other places, you see them reciting this thing when Moses took us out with great power and wonders and signs. And so they're looking for a Messiah who's going to come and take them out of their captivity. You see, in the minds of the people of Israel, the Messiah was going to take an earthly position where he releases them from captivity. That's what they're thinking. That's what the Messiah was to them. He's going to come and he's going to save them from their enemies and set them in a new position. So that's what they're looking forward to, this Messiah coming. And Jesus is coming, but it's not what they expected. Kind of like that cart, as you thought you're going one direction and you go the opposite direction, and you end up on the ground going, what happened? And that's kind of what happens here as Jesus comes from the Galilee, and they come up at Passover time, they all come. Some estimates up to close to a million people in Jerusalem for this celebration of Passover. Very important thing. By the way, we just had Passover. I don't know if you knew it or not, but it wasn't uh, about a week ago. But this is the time of Passover. Jesus is coming up. Here. And so while he's traveling, he comes down and comes around. And he goes through Jericho. And as he's going through Jericho, he's got an entourage with him of people who believe in him, who follow him. Most of the time we're thinking Jesus is traveling alone. That's not the case at all. He's got all these people with him and they're, and they're traveling. And so the word gets out that here comes this Jesus of Nazareth who they've heard about doing miracles. And this little short guy lived there in Jericho. And his name was, anybody have any idea? Zacchaeus. Very good. And Zacchaeus, he's trying to see this parade that's coming down. He can't see anything. You know? <laughs> so it says he climbs into a sycamore tree to wait to see Jesus coming down. Now, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, probably the most hated guy in Jericho. Because who likes to pay taxes? I got a brother-in-law who's just so excited to pay his taxes. No, not really. He said, I got to pay taxes. I said, well, welcome to the club. Nobody likes paying taxes. And, and what's worse is Zacchaeus wasn't real honest of a guy. If you owed a thousand, he'd make it fifteen hundred and bump a few dollars into his own pocket. And the people were quite aware 
of what's going on. He was a thief in a sense, loathed and despised. The back in the last century that I was born in, in Sunday school, they used to have this thing called Sunday school. It was for kids. Remember that, David? In fact, Sunday school in the 1950s, they tell me, was gigantic. Children would go to Sunday school, and they learned these stories, and this is one of the stories. And sometimes they teach us the story by teaching us a song. So does anybody know the song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And the Savior came that way, he looked up in the tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. For I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. Now, if you wanted to rile people up, if you were wanting to get them going, you go to the tax collector's house to dine with him. A holy man is not supposed to have anything to do with evil, and here's this evil guy. No question about it. He's going to your house. It's like in the early 60s, and we used to use piano and organ in church. Those were the things you could use, piano and organ. And we uh, put together a, a band of electric bass, electric guitar, drums, and sang one Sunday morning. The wig started falling to the side. <laughs> people, devil music! You want to upset people, do something that's not what they think is right, right? That's what Jesus did. He's on the way to the Passover meal, a holy meal, a holy day, convocation unto the Lord. And he stops off to have dinner or lunch at Zacchaeus' place. Well, what happened to Zacchaeus? He got saved. That's what happened to Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus joins the group as they head to Jerusalem. And on the way past there, they stopped to find two blind men. Jesus stops and he heals both of them. They join the crowd. As he's going along up to Jerusalem, He's doing what? Signs and wonders. What did Moses lead him out of the land with? Signs and wonders. Here is Jesus doing miracles on the way up to Jerusalem. Very obvious, the man of God, but even more, the son of God. And he travels on his journey and then Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, 
you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be, what? Fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, set them, set them on them, and a very, and a very, 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 Close the road and cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, of Galilee. So here we have Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And where does he start? The Mount of Olives. Now you remember Bethany, or maybe you don't remember Bethany, but that's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And if you remember, it wasn't long before this that Lazarus had died and was in the grave for three days, and Jesus came and resurrected him from the grave. That's where, he, that's where he spends the night just before going in to Jerusalem, the place where a resurrection had taken place. And guess where he's going into Jerusalem? Or guess what's going to happen? A resurrection is going to take place. How many days was Lazarus in the grave? Three days. How many days... Is Jesus in the grave? Three days. I love it when God foreshadows. He lets you know what's happening and he sets an example of it and then does it again in a major way. And here's what's interesting about this triumphal entry. This triumphal entry into Jerusalem is not like a conquering king on a white horse, but on the opposite, on the foal of a donkey unridden before, which was a sign of peace. Jesus came to bring peace, not a sword. That's what he came into Jerusalem, riding on a colt. And this coronation, as it were, of the king of kings and the lord of lords is the opposite of any other kind of coronation. <laughs> and we don't really get to see coronations because we don't have a king or a queen. We have a presidente, a president. <laughs> well, that's some of the things they call him, but <laughs> at any rate, don't get me on my hand. <laughs> so we haven't seen a coronation, but like when Victoria was uh, coron had her coronation in England, she had a scepter that had a 536-carat diamond at the top of that scepter. 
On the crown, she had a 386 carat diamond. What'd you get for your wedding? <laughs> I, sorry about that. I didn't mean to put you on. It's okay. Didn't quite make 300, did it? Okay. You imagine having a 300 carat diamond? What do you think? When I'm done here, I'm going to go bowling. But there's majesty and coronation and great ceremony. It's all spent splendor and all this other stuff. How did Jesus come? <laughs> On a little foal of a donkey. Who were surrounding him? All the people that he had gathered. Fishermen and workers and sinners who had been saved. Yes, even Matthew and Zacchaeus were there. Tax collectors. Who surrounded Jesus? Wasn't this majesty? Not majesty at all. The opposite. This <coughs> particular coronation, this particular triumph, triumphal entry into Jerusalem was that Jesus was coming as the Passover lamb. It's not by chance he came at Passover time because he is the Passover lamb. And on the same day that they slay the Passover lamb, lamb guess who's slain on the cross? When the blood of the Passover lamb is flowing to cover the sins of the people in a symbolic way, here is Jesus being slain and his blood being shed for the sins of us. Not symbolically, but literally. His blood flowed from his side. That's the tragic part. The traveling is bringing peace, joy, miracles, salvation. Coming in on the foal of a donkey. The triumph, how the people responded. How did the people respond to this coming into Jerusalem? He enters six days before his crucifixion. Six days until the Lamb of God becomes the Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Six days before he is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Six days before the nails and the thorns, the spit and the cursing and the spear, the hatred of sin-bearing, the loneliness of being forsaken, six days before he feels the fury, the full fury of divine wrath for the sins of his people. Now, as he's coming... He gives his disciples some instructions. Remember that? I want two of your disciples to do something for me. Now, these two disciples were probably Peter and John. And the only reason we think that that's probably the case is because this isn't the first time that two disciples are sent on errands. And they're actually named in the book of Luke, Luke 22, 8. Peter and John were the ones that were chosen. There's no reason to believe any differently that Peter and John were the 
ones that Jesus entrusted with certain things. John being the youngest of all the disciples, by the way, and Peter being the most outspoken. Speak first, then remove foot out of mouth. You know? And John describes himself as a disciple that Jesus loved. That didn't cause any division among the disciples. Oh, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. I love it because they're human. You see the humanity of the disciples. You start reading these different accounts. You start to see this. Let's go into the village. They were Bethpage. We don't know about much about Bethpage. We don't have any information on it now. We just know it was opposite of Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, obviously. <clears throat> but in Bethpage, there was obviously a followers of Jesus Christ, those who believed in him. And who knows, perhaps Jesus had gone to them previously when he was traveling through the area and said, I'm going to need the use of a donkey and a colt some Passover. My guess is that happened. See, it says if they were to write everything that Jesus did, we couldn't handle the amount of stuff that's there. So some things we just kind of fill in the blanks. It's kind of the white spaces, you know. But it makes total logical sense that Jesus prepared everything and no doubt prepared this because when they go, the two disciples go, they just untie the donkey and the colt and start walking away. Says, what do you do? He says, the Lord has need of them. Well, they must have seen Jesus as Lord. They must know who Lord was. Otherwise, what Lord are you talking about, you know? Maybe somebody comes and borrows you a brand new Ferrari. You do have a Ferrari, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and a Volkswagen right next to it. <laughs> takes them both, drives them away, you might ask a question or two. But there was no question about this. It's immediately they do, they do it, and there's no problem there whatsoever. Just tell them the Lord has need of it. So it's all prepared. They do as Jesus says. And this is all part of what has been laid out already. Yes? Well, probably about 15 minutes more. Then we'll be done. I don't why I do stupid things like that. Because I got a weird mind. So, everything has been laid out. You see, Jesus didn't have a whole lot that wasn't already prophesied. There's so many prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Jesus. If somebody would just read the book, study to show yourself to prove unto God. A workman. That means you got to work at studying the Bible. It's not done by sitting on it and hope that it comes up through the other way. You don't get it through the seat of the pants. You know? You have to hear it. You have to study it. You have to meditate on it. 
You have to work at it. And if you do that, you find out all these things. Jesus' life was laid out before he ever got here, and the prophecy are in the Old Testament, specific to who Jesus is and what he had to do. This is one out of them. Found in Zechariah. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Is that specific enough? Prophesied a long time ago when he's coming into Jerusalem and he's coming on a colt. And if they knew the scriptures, they'd know who it was. I'm just telling you, I want you to see some parallels here because this is going to get excited. Because this isn't the only triumphal entry Jesus is going to have. Those of you who are in our end times class know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Wednesdays, we've been going 20 weeks now, we've been on the end times. I thought it was going to be a six to eight week course. <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. No, it's growing and, and we're learning more, but here's what's really interesting about Palm Sunday, because this Palm Sunday, my friends, has more significance than you can imagine. Because Jesus is coming to the Mount of Olives again. And he's coming down the same road into Jerusalem triumphantly. And how is he coming this time? Read the book of Revelation, you'll find out. Great clouds of people and all of us who are believers who know Jesus Christ, who are his bride, are coming with him. Now instead of just bigger men and fishermen and all those, now you've got people from all nations, all tribes, all backgrounds, rich and poor, everybody who's been born by the blood of the Lamb was sacrificed in this particular Palm Sunday will come with them on that new day when he comes to enter a second time. Whoa! That don't get your pot going. If you can't get your fire going by that, your wood's wet. Behold, your king has come to you, gentle mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Zechariah 9 9. The first part of that verse actually comes from Isaiah 62 11. The first one actually comes from that because it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, daughter of Zion is the people of Jerusalem. Say to the daughter of Zion, rejoice greatly, chapter, verse 9 of chapter 9 of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
There you have that, you, that very same expression, although the exact words that are recorded in Matthew are the exact words quoted out of Isaiah 62, 11. You can see the common expression. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and righteous, endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now the first section in Zechariah 9, verses 1 through 7, is actually a prophecy about a conquering king. As you read through Zechariah 9, kind of interesting about scriptures is that you'll have a literal fulfillment of scriptures and then there'll be a prophetic fulfillment of scriptures later on by the same prophet. But there's nothing that says. And now we move forward. It just, it just, and you, ha and you have to study a workman. He's not being ashamed. So who was that first conqueror? Alexander the Great. The Great not grape. Great. Alexander the Great. And what did he do when he came to Jerusalem? They read him the scripture and he said, oh, that's me. And he saved Jerusalem. He didn't attack Israel. He protected them. Interesting how God uses people and their own egos against them. And Alexander Great goes, oh, I'm written in your book. <laughs> it was written years before I ever got here. That's, well, that's me. I'm the one who's fulfilling that. I'm give you guys a pass. And he protects them. But the second one who comes in the second part of Zechariah 9 is Jesus. And what he's, what's he going to be? The protector of Israel. This time, this, this little journey into Jerusalem is far more significant than we've given it credit for over the years. We've missed a lot of good stuff. Pretty powerful stuff. My brain's here. So, here you have Jesus coming and the crowd's going ahead of him. Verse 9. The crowds are going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What Hosanna really means is save now. So I say, save us now. Save us now. Save us now. Save us from what? You'd think salvation. Right? To eternal life. Now, they're saying, save us from the Romans. Save us from... Come on in, conquering king. Kick them out of here. Get them out. Why? Because what happens is where we live is us and what affects us. And so what people really wanted was to get these Romans off their back. So here comes a conquering king, they think, who is going to deliver them from these terrible Gentile ones who have got them in captivity. That was their messianic theology. <coughs> so they're saying, save us! Save us! Get us free from these Romans. 
That's why just a few days later, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because he couldn't save himself from the Romans. They, their hopes and their dreams and their expectations have not been met. That's a terrible thing. It changes people's hearts when their expectations aren't met. Now, here's an interesting thing for you to consider. Think about this. Jesus didn't come to give you riches and wealth and everything that you want. He didn't come as a genie in a bottle where you can say, oh, I wish I prayed for it. I pray for this. I pray for that. You just take care of it, won't you, genie? You're here to serve me, right? <clears throat> Jesus is not your private genie. Jesus came and suffered, and he said, if they persecute me, don't be surprised when they persecute you. It's not a life of everything that you want. It's cotton candy clouds so fluffy and white as I tiptoe through the field so bright. When I become saved, everything goes the right way. That's what makes me happy living today. I just made that up. You can... <laughs> Write that down and you can go ahead and use it. Good luck. That's not what Jesus came for. There is coming a day when that will pale in comparison to what Jesus is going to do for those that love him, those who are called according to his purpose, those who belong to him, because I hasn't seen nor has it heard nor has even entered their minds how fantastic a place God has prepared for those that are his. It's not now. This isn't heaven on earth. Far from it. So he promised them that a king would come and they'd lay down their robes and they cut one of the other Gospels tells us they cut palm branches down. That's what we call it, Palm Sunday. And they laid it on the way, and so the red carpet was people's dirty old outer coverings that they laid before him, which actually there's precedence in the Old Testament showing that as a, a sign of submission when you would lay down your cloak for somebody. But here they are, his, his red carpet entry, his palm branches and these outer clothings that they lay down, cloaks. And they're coming in and they're all cheering for him and the leaders, the Jewish leaders are going, whoops, what's going on here? Is it the whole world's going after this guy. We got other plans for him. <laughs> we have plans to get rid of the dude. 
He's causing problems for us. We want to kill him. How are we going to be able to kill him when everybody thinks he's so great and so wonderful and they're giving him all this adulation? He's so popular, we'll never be able to get him killed. This is bad. And they say to Jesus, hey, tell your disciples and tell these people to quit yelling that. Quit yelling, Hosanna. Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quit. Tell them to stop saying that. So Jesus turns to him and he says, I could. But if they don't yell out, even the Methodists will. I mean, even the stones. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Why do you do that? Even the stones will cry out. The rocks will cry out. Because somebody's going to cry out about this. But they had other plans for Jesus. That's the tragedy that comes next. What's the tragedy that comes next? He comes in triumph, and they turn it into a tragedy. Who turns it into a tragedy? Well, you think it was the Jewish leaders, but it really was Jesus. Huh? Do you think it's by chance that he stirred the crowds as much as he did? Do you think it's by chance he chose that particular time? Do you think it's by chance he didn't know what the Pharisees and Sadducees were thinking? Do you think it's by chance all that's true? Or do you think he knew what he was doing? <laughs> and what does he do? He goes directly to the temple. And what's he do? This is a house of prayer. He overturns all the money changers' tables. He says, we need to purify this. Now, that made the Jewish leaders real happy. Because, you see, they had their own temple money. You had to do exchange. You had to exchange your money for temple money. And when they did that, they'd always cheat the people. For $5, they'll give you $1 worth of temple money, you know, wherever it was. And Jesus came in and he upset everything. Went right after the Jewish leaders. What's that going to cause them to do? Be even more determined to fulfill the killing of Jesus. That was on their mind big time. And they had a little bit of help from a guy who spilled his guts. Had a lot of hang-ups. His name was Judas. Yeah. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't just it happened. Jesus came to fulfill his destiny called by God to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The tragedy was that instead of becoming king of the people, he became the lamb that was slain. However, that, tra that tragedy turns into triumph, doesn't it? That's next week. If the Lord tarries, next week we talk about, well, I don't know who, 
I'm not speaking next week, so I have no idea what we're going to talk about. <laughs> but next week is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And that's when Jesus rises from the grave. It's the backbone of all Christianity. Is a resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If there's no resurrection, we have no hope. But there is resurrection. <laughs> Up from the grave, he arose and brought life. And I'm looking forward to the day when we come back with Jesus to the Mount of Olives for that triumphal entry. That's the finale of triumphal entries. And from that day forward, we begin the everlasting process where King of Kings and Lord of Lords will continue to rule all the way through. Even there's going to be one more rebellion against him, he'll take care of that. Then we have a new heaven, a new earth, a new temple of our God. We're going to be in heaven then. That's pretty cool. Isaiah 61, 4 through 7. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall rise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen, your, your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in the glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double everlasting joy, shall be theirs, millennial reign of Jesus Christ for a thousand years. And then the great rebellion, great throne judgment, and we're in heaven. It all begins with this entry into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, the first triumphal entry. Now remember when Jesus came the first time in human flesh? It was Magi. Remember this? Magi came from the east. And what do they say? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star and we've come to pay him homage. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the leaders all had the same scriptures. They missed it. We have the scriptures, people. All we have to do is study. And unfolding in those scriptures are the second return of Jesus. The position of believers today and where they'll be. It's all in the book. I've read it. It's a great book. You gotta try it. But don't just read it. Study it. Because it has all the truth in it. Exciting truth, if you ask me. I mean, not. I'm ready to get rid of this body. I've used it up pretty good. You know? I've expanded and contracted. And 
over and over again. Right now I'm in the contracting stages. I'm going to actually fit this on. But next week, next week, it's White Suit Sunday. Every Easter I wear my white suit, which causes David to go in total embarrassment and want to hide my son, which I absolutely love. Poor Dr. David Robinson, he just has a tough time. He has a tough time with ties, but a three-piece suit with a white vest, oh, man. I'm going to finish with this, so I'll just tell you something. Some people probably wonder, why do you wear a tie in this day and age when all they are are chokers? And I, they are chokers, by the way, especially when you gain weight. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. Back in the last century, when I was raised, they dressed to, as a matter of respect unto God. It was a respect thing. Now, I thank God that that's no longer the case. We live in a day and age now where dress has absolutely nothing to do with respect. If you don't believe me, go to a wedding and then look at pictures from the 1950s, the 60s, and 70s. If you want some 70s, I got some of those. <laughs> and see how people dress at weddings and see what they dress like today. Dress codes have changed. What's important is where's your heart? You know, God doesn't care if you come in a tuxedo if your heart's bad. He doesn't care if you come in the worst of clothing, if your heart's right. Because <laughs> he doesn't judge the outside, he judges the heart. Okay, so why do you still wear a suit? You want to know? Okay. I thought everybody had gone to sleep for a minute there. As, as I was going into ministry, I had a, Guy, he said, when you minister before the Lord, you're on a different level than others. When you teach the word of God, you're held to a higher responsibility. And if you study the Old Testament, you see those who ministered before the Lord had a particular dress. They didn't just wear their everyday clothes. They had to go through a process. In fact, there was in the temple a basin of water that was called the sea. It was so huge that you'd go in and you would stand and you could dunk underneath it, which you were to do. You were to cover yourself totally immersed in water and wash yourself, come out the other side and put on the white robes to minister before the Lord as a purification act. Now, why did God have the outward purified? Because when you're doing that, you're supposed to be purifying the interior as well. You offer sacrifice for sin, and then you do a physical idea of the same idea, purification, and you come out ready to minister before the Lord because he's holy. So I was trained that as long as you're going to minister before the Lord, you'll dress differently. You'll dress in a manner that is worthy 
And if I was going to go see the President of the United States personally, I would dress. So my heart says, how can I honor God? How can I do it? Now, this isn't for everybody. Not everybody has to do this. Trust me. Nobody else has to do this. Nobody. But for my heart, I feel that that's what God called me to do. When I minister before the Lord, show the respect do him. That's why I dress the way I dress. Mystery solved. <laughs> now, when I'm not up here, you'll see me in different clothing. If I'm not ministering before the Lord, watch out. I mean, not... <laughs> God is good, isn't he? All the time. Here's the last thing I'm going to say as we close. Last thing. If you don't know Jesus personally, don't let another day go by. I don't mean do you know about Jesus. Lots of people know about Jesus. It says that the demons know about Jesus and fear. They believe about Jesus, but they haven't trusted him as their Savior and Lord. They haven't committed. They haven't humbled themselves. They haven't asked. They haven't knocked on the door. If you haven't received Jesus Christ and, you, and you're not even sure about it, make sure of it. Because I'm telling you, the King is coming. And it may be sooner than you think. We don't have a lot of time, folks. The Scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Today. You don't know what's going to happen. You can walk out here and get hit by a bus. In my case, poor bus. <laughs> but you don't know what your future is. Lock it down. Number two, if you've been kind of wishy-washy, if you've kind of been lukewarm, it's time to heat up. It's time to dedicate your life again to the Lord fully. It's time to give him your whole heart. Seek after him diligently. Go after it. Go after his word. Warm up. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. You're a wonderful, great God. So fantastic. And you've let us see in your word what's happening, what's going to happen. We see what has happened. We see what is happening. And we see what's going to happen who was and is and is to come. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your mercy and your tenderness and your kindness and your patience towards us. Thank you for drawing us unto yourself. And you may be drawing people here this morning. I pray that they'll respond. Thank you for all that you do. In the name of Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior forever and ever, and all God's people said, Amen.